The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. And this week, we have a slightly different format. You heard Kraken in the introduction, but sadly, that was pre-recorded. This week, Kraken was out of town and unable to record. We tried to reschedule, and it just didn't work out. So for this episode, it is just me. However, hopefully, the story is interesting enough without the amazing and humorous commentary of my cohort. Today I want to tell you about the Cleveland Torso Murderer. This is a serial killer from the 1930s who is actually not as well known as I would expect once I read the story and did the research and started digging in. So I hope you enjoy it and it has some very interesting ties, so I would say stick around to the end if you want to hear some very interesting theories about this murderer. In the 1920s, the stock market had rapid expansion, with its peak in August of 1929. In the aftermath of this rapid expansion, the wealth of the Roaring Twenties, production started declining and unemployment was on the rise with low wages, high debt, and agricultural struggles. Stock prices started declining in September. Panic set in and a record 12,894,650 shares were traded. Some investors tried to balance the market by buying large blocks of shares, but on October 29th, the New York Stock Exchange crashed due to 16,410,030 shares being traded in a single day. This started the Great Depression and it continued with lasting effects through 1939. In Cleveland, Ohio, the working poor were living in a ramshackle shanty town in the Kingsbury Run along the east side of Cleveland near Shaker Heights down to the Cuyahoga River. Shaker Heights is one of Cleveland's earliest suburbs established in 1909. Kingsbury Run was in the part of Cleveland known as the Roaring Third, which was Cleveland's third district. A Hooverville was a shantytown built during the Great Depression. They were named after President Herbert Hoover, who was in office during the onset of the Depression and was widely blamed for it. People would build shelter from crates, cardboard, scraps of metal, anything they could find. They would use newspapers as blankets and they would line their worn out shoes with cardboard to get just a few more miles out of them. Residents often relied on public charities and begging for food. Many victims of this story remain unidentified to this day. It is believed the killer preyed on the homeless and transient populations at the time. On September 5th, 1934, on Euclid Beach off of Lake Erie in Brattonall, Ohio, a female torso was discovered by a young man named Frank Lagasse. The torso was missing its arms, head, and legs below the knee. 
The skin of the body had been coated in a chemical preservative, possibly lime chloride, which was a popular bleaching agent at the time. That chemical made the skin red, leathery, and tough. Police searched and were able to find a few more body parts, but her head was never recovered and she remains unidentified. She was given the name The Lady of the Lake and is buried in a plot in Highland Park Cemetery in Highland Park, Ohio. It is believed that The Lady of the Lake was the first victim of the serial killer labor dubbed the Cleveland Torso Murderer, or the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. On September 23, 1935, Edward Andresi's body was found at the base of Jackass Hill in Kingsbury Run by two teenage boys. Edward Anthony Andresi was born September 3, 1906. He worked as a hospital orderly and had an arrest record for having a concealed weapon, which meant that his fingerprints were actually on file. At this point in time, the only fingerprints that were gathered were those of criminals, not like today where most of us get fingerprinted as children. At the time of his disappearance, he was living with his parents who mentioned to the police that Edward had a run-in with a local mobster only a few weeks before. The man alleged that Edward was paying attention to his wife and threatened him. After staying home for a few days in fear, Edward returned to his normal life and was last seen September 19th. When the body was found, Edward was completely naked except for a pair of socks. His head and private parts were removed, with the head found buried near the rest of the body. The body was both cleaned and completely drained of blood. Areas of the skin were coated in the same chemical as the Lady of the Lake, leaving it red and leathery. The coroner noted rope burns around the wrist, and the cause of death was ruled a combination of decapitation, hemorrhage, and shock, meaning that he was alive when his head was removed. It was estimated he had been deceased for two to three days, and the coroner also noted that the removed body parts were done skillfully by someone with an understanding of anatomy and butchery. It was believed to be either an axe or a butcher's knife that was used for the beheading. While searching the area, police discovered a second body. This man was estimated to be dead at least one week, but possibly up to three or four. He was estimated to be in his 40s, and he was also beheaded, castrated, and coated with the chemical substance. This body had also been saturated in oil and lit on fire. His head was found in the same shallow grave as Edward's, but the man was never identified. He is still known simply as John Doe number one in the case. It would be four months before the killings started again. On January 26, 1936, a woman found two half-bushel baskets next to the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue in Cleveland. I had to look up the size of a half-bushel basket because I wasn't quite sure what that really meant. A half-bushel is approximately 18 inches around and 12 inches tall. In these baskets were a woman's torso, upper legs, and right arm with hands still attached, all wrapped in newspapers from the day before. The rest of her body was recovered from a trash pile in a vacant lot across town 10 days later. It was believed that her throat was slit, but this was unable to be confirmed without her head, which was never found. She was identified as Florence Genevieve Pilio, 
because again, her fingerprints were on file. Florence was born Florence Soddy on December 6, 1891, and spent her early youth in Erie, Pennsylvania's Fourth Ward with her mother Nellie and her father Fred. As a child, Florence's family moved around often as her father struggled to find work. Once an adult in the 1920s, Florence was said to be an alcoholic who suffered abuse at the hands of her lovers. She was a barmaid, a waitress, and a sex worker who lived on the edge of the Roaring Third, not far from Kingsbury Run. Some accounts described her as emotionally unstable, but there aren't any details as to what that exactly means. In 1923, she married Andrew Polio and moved to Buffalo, New York, but the couple divorced in 1928 after her infidelity. Florence then returned to the Erie area and she was arrested for the first time in August of 1928 for solicitation. In 1930, she then moved to Cleveland. She was arrested again for solicitation in 1930 and quote unquote, renting a room for immoral purposes in 1931. In 1934, she was arrested for solicitation in Washington, D.C., but the authorities agreed to drop the charges if she immediately left D.C. and never returned. She was arrested one last time in 1935 for selling liquor. Due to her many arrests, police were able to identify her body. On June 5, 1936, the head of John Doe No. 2 was discovered by two boys near the East 55th Street Bridge. The head was wrapped in a pair of pants. The following day, the body was discovered naked in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police building across town. Like the other victims, he was beheaded, cleaned, and drained of blood. But there were no other mutilations or torture performed to this body. The coroner determined he had only been dead a few days when he was found. John Doe number two became known as the Tattooed Man due to the six unique tattoos on his body, including a butterfly, the comic strip character Jigs from Bringing Up Father, a Cupid, the name Helen Paul over a white dove, crossed flags with the letters WCG, and an arrow through a heart. Investigators hoped the unique artwork would help to identify him, but they were unable to discover who he was, only able to estimate that his age was around 25 years old. The crossed flags with WCG could have indicated some sort of military attachment, but it turned to be a dead end for the police. Investigators did find various articles of clothing at the scene, including pants, a polo shirt, two additional shirts, a worn hat, underwear with the laundry mark for JD, a pair of worn shoes with laces tied together, and socks placed inside them. It is likely that some or all of this clothing could have been the victims. At the time, they didn't have the same technologies and methods that we have today. In order to help try to get some identification and public awareness of these unidentified bodies, they started casting their faces and creating masks that they could then take around to the public to see if anybody recognized these victims. This method was used throughout the entire case, and some of the masks are still on display in museums. 
On July 22, 1936, another body was found. Again, beheaded and drained of blood, it had been in the elements for an estimated two months, making it absolutely impossible to identify. His head was recovered, but they were unable to get fingerprints or facial recognition due to the state of decomposition. The body was discovered in the Big Creek area in the western part of Cleveland, making this the only West Side victim. A large pool of blood was also found in the area, leading investigators to conclude that the murder happened at the same location that the body was discovered. The body was naked, but a pile of clothing was found nearby. And, due to the poor quality of the clothing, as well as the victim's long and unkempt hair, plus the proximity to a homeless camp, it is believed he was a hobo who rode in or out of the city by train. This murder did have some discrepancies compared to the others. The beheading was not done with the skill and precision of the others. It was performed on site and it was in a different location. It is possible this murder was by someone who was simply using the torso murderer as a cover to commit their own crime. On September 10th, 1936, John Doe number four was discovered in a creek in Kingsbury Run. A transient man was trying to hop the train when he saw a torso in the sewer. The torso was cut into two pieces. The head removed between the third and fourth cervical vertebrae, and then a second split at the third and fourth lumbar vertebrae. The victim's head, kidneys, and stomach were not found, and as with the other male victims, he was emasculated. The fire rescue squad dragged the creek, hoping to find the rest of the body. It was estimated he was dead approximately two days when the body was found. As the authorities began dragging the creek, a crowd of nearly 600 people gathered as a diver searched for more body parts. Again, the coroner noted the killer was familiar with human anatomy and stated that the head was removed in a single, bold, clean stroke. The search also turned up a gray felt hat from Lottie's Smart Shop in Bellevue, Ohio, which had possible blood spots on the top and a blood-covered blue work shirt wrapped in a newspaper near where the body was found. Things were quiet again for a few months, but then on February 23, 1937, the top half of the body of Jane Doe Number 1 was found in the same location as the Lady of the Lake in 1935 on Euclid Beach. Estimated to be dead for three to four days, Jane Doe Number 1 was disarticulated at the glenoid fossa, which is the socket of the shoulder joint, and then beheaded between the 7th cervical and 1st thoracic vertebrae. Both pleural cavities, which is the tissue surrounding the lungs, had considerable water and gravel within them. The lungs were also observed to have dirt and signs of emphysema, indicating she most likely lived or worked in an urban area. The lower half of her body washed ashore in May. Her arms, legs, and head were never found. This victim was estimated to be in her mid-twenties and had signs of previously birthing a child, but was never identified. On June 6, 1937, the body of a woman believed to be Rose Wallace was discovered beneath the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge by a teenage boy. Dental work allowed for unofficial identification, but she is technically recorded as Jane Doe No. 2. 
The victim had a very prominent underbite and extensive dental work with gold crowns, which was quite uncommon. The remains were found in a rotting burlap bag with a newspaper from June of 1936, suggesting time of death was approximately one year prior. This added to the dispute of victim identification because Rose Wallace only disappeared 10 months before the body was found. Jane Doe, number two, is also distinct as the only African-American victim of the killer. While she was the eighth victim discovered, she was most likely the sixth killed. She suffered the same decapitation and mutilation as other victims, but she was also missing one of her rib bones. One month later, on July 6, 1937, parts of the body of John Doe No. 5 were pulled from the Cuyahoga River approximately two to three days after his death. The body was decapitated and disarticulated. The upper torso was found in a burlap chicken feed sack, while other body parts were simply found floating in the water on their own. The head, heart, and abdominal organs were never recovered. It was noted that this victim had well-groomed fingernails, which would have been extremely odd for a homeless or transient victim at the time. On April 8, 1938, the lower leg of Jane Doe No. 3 was discovered floating in the Cuyahoga River. In May, her thigh was found leading to a search of the second area. Police were able to find her torso cut in half, another thigh, and the left foot in a burlap sack. This was the only victim to be found with drugs in their system. She had morphine at a level of 2 milligrams in a 100 gram sample. It is unknown if she was drugged by the killer or if she was a habitual drug user. It was most likely an injection of liquid morphine, meaning the 2 milligrams was a fairly high dose. Intravenous morphine overdose can occur at 3 to 10 milligrams in the first hour after injection. There were indications that she had had a cesarean section at one point, as well as the possible natural birth of a second child. On August 16, 1938, the decapitated body of Jane Doe No. 4 was found. Her torso was wrapped in a man's blue blazer and an old quilt. The arms and legs were found in a makeshift box wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. Her head was recovered wrapped in a similar manner. Cuyahogee County Coroner S.R. Gerber, M.D., also noted that it appeared some of the body parts may have been refrigerated. Lead Detective Peter Murillo later dismissed Jane Doe No. 4 as one of the serial killer's murders due to signs of embalming on the remains. No other victim showed any signs of embalming, and it was determined she had been deceased for four to six months. The same day, while searching for more of Jane Doe No. 4's body, the skeletal remains of John Doe No. 6 were discovered in plain view of Safety Director Elliot Ness's office. Some accounts say John Doe No. 6's head was found in a can, but this is not in the official police report. All other extremities were removed at their major joints, and it was estimated he had been dead for seven to nine months. There is the possibility that the torso murderer could have committed the murder of Robert Robertson, who was found on July 22, 1950, in Cleveland. He had been dead six to eight weeks and was decapitated like the other victims. His general profile also fit the victimology as he was estranged from his family and lived on the fringes of society. Newspapers widely linked the murder to the serial killer, but police investigated the death as an isolated incident. 
At the time the murders occurred, Elliot Ness was the public safety director of Cleveland overseeing the police and fire departments. While he had little to do with the actual investigation, his reputation as the leader of the Untouchables brought a lot of attention. Ness did contribute to the arrest of one of the prime suspects and led a raid on a shantytown in Kingsbury Run. Detectives Orly May, Emil Mussel, Martin Zalewski, and lead investigator Peter Murillo all worked the case from the beginning. There were two main suspects in the case, Frank Dolezal and Francis E. Sweetie. Frank Dolezal once lived with Florist Polio and had connections to two other known victims, Edward Andresi and Rose Wallace. He was a bricklayer by profession and spent much of his time in the Roaring Third. In July 1939, he was arrested. Investigators thought it was a slam dunk and allegedly beat him until he confessed. Again, it's the 30s. Laws weren't the same back then. He recanted the confession soon after. Then, in August of 1939, he was found dead in his cell. It was ruled a suicide, but very few people actually believed this. The hook he was found hanging from was one inch lower than he was tall. Additionally, he did not have the skills or the knowledge to carve up bodies in the manner of the killer. However, Francis Sweeney was a brilliant doctor and surgeon. He was also a World War I veteran who suffered intense PTSD at the time. Mental health was not understood or cared for the way it is today, and Sweeney's mental health deteriorated. His wife appeared in probate court twice, asking to have him committed to a psychiatric institution, saying he neglected his medical practice, drank excessively, and disappeared for days at a time. Sweeney was put under surveillance in secret because his cousin was a congressman that had been relentlessly criticizing the handling of the torso murders. The surveillance was unsuccessful, and a month later, John Doe No. 3 was discovered. This prompted Elliot Ness to have investigators kidnap Sweeney and take him to a darkened suite at the Cleveland Hotel. He was held for over a week with Ness and David Cowles. At the time of the abduction, Sweet was at the end of a bender, and it took days for him to sober up enough to be questioned. They even used the brand new cutting-edge technology of the time, the polygraph. Leonard Keeler, who was one of the inventors, actually performed the tests himself. After multiple polygraph tests, Keeler reportedly told Ness, that's your man. Might as well throw my machine at the window if I say differently. However, they were unable to get a confession from Sweeney and had no choice but to let him go. After his release, the last two official victims were found. At this point, Ness led the raid on Kingsbury Run. Authorities evicted over 300 people and then burned the shacks to the ground. This was a black mark on his record after he was already known for bringing down Al Capone and enforcing prohibition in Chicago. In the 1950s, Ness started to receive taunting postcards signed by F.E. Sweeney. He also received a letter that the killer relocated to sunny California. Elliot Ness died from a heart attack in 1957, but until he passed away, he was convinced he knew the identity of the torso murderer and just couldn't prove it. Sweeney, however, was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1956 
and passed away in 1964, never being charged. Many believe that Sweeney was, in fact, the killer. He would go underground once police started closing in, and then once everything cooled off, he would then go back to what he was doing. But again, there's no proof. Hopefully, something like genetic genealogy can potentially help if any of the evidence is still around, but we still don't know. There are, however, some theories about a different suspect. Cleveland had very easy access to trains. Some believe the killer simply left town and turned up elsewhere, most notably Los Angeles, California. In the 1940s, LA was a sleepy movie town and a city for immigrants. The decade saw the construction of the Pasadena Freeway and LAX, as well as the founding of In-N-Out Burger. The world was reeling from World War II in the early 40s and then the aftermath for the rest of the decade. Elizabeth Short was an aspiring actress. She was said to be incredibly beautiful and charming. She grew up in Massachusetts. Her father disappeared when she was just five years old. His car was found abandoned near a lake and it was assumed he committed suicide. However, years later, Elizabeth's mother received a letter of apology from him and he was now living in California. When she was 15, Elizabeth had lung surgery for chronic bronchitis and severe asthma. The doctor suggested she relocate to a warmer climate. At 18, Elizabeth moved in with her father in Vallejo in Northern California. After a falling out, she then moved out in January of 1943. Later that year, in September, she moved to Santa Barbara where she was arrested for underage drinking at a bar. She was sent back to her family in Massachusetts before moving to Florida with extended family members. While in Florida, Elizabeth met Major Matthew Gordon Jr., a decorated Air Force officer. While recovering in injuries of a plane crash in India, Matthew wrote a letter to Elizabeth proposing marriage. Unfortunately, Major Gordon passed away in a second plane crash on August 10, 1945, less than one week before the end of the war was declared. In 1946, Elizabeth relocated back to Los Angeles. She was working as a waitress as she aspired to be a film star. She was last seen at the Billmore Hotel on January 9, 1947 to meet her sister visiting from Boston. On January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger was taking her three-year-old daughter for a walk and discovered the naked body of Elizabeth Short in a vacant lot in Leimert Park. Initially, Ms. Bursinger thought it was a shop mannequin because the body was so pale. Her body was severed at the waist, drained of blood, and washed. She had evidence of torture and rope burns indicating she had been tied up. These details are what led some theorists to believe the case was linked to the torso murderer. However, there are distinct differences in the cases, the largest being the lack of decapitation and the victimology. Elizabeth was not impoverished or transient, and she was killed in a more ritualistic manner. Elizabeth was determined to have been dead approximately 10 hours when she was found. The body was so rigorously cleaned that there were brush marks and burns on the skin. The corners of her mouth were slashed up to her ears, creating the effect known as a Glasgow smile. There were slices on her thighs and chest, some slicing away portions of flesh. Her lower body was posed one foot away from her upper body, 
She was also posed with her hands above her head, with elbows bent at right angles, and her legs spread apart. Nearby, police found a heel print near some tire tracks and a cement sack containing watery blood. The autopsy determined mutilation was performed after death. She had died from blows to the head. Due to her arrest in a former military base position, Elizabeth's fingerprints were on file, allowing her to be identified. The media nicknamed her the Black Dahlia, based off of her often wearing black clothing and a recent Hollywood film at the time called The Blue Dahlia. Over 500 people have confessed to this crime, but most believe, including his son, that George Hodel was the killer. Hodel was suspected but never formally charged. He was a medical doctor, and at least eight witnesses claimed Hodel and Elizabeth Short had an intimate relationship. Police wiretapped his residence as part of an 18-man task force. On the tapes, he was recorded saying, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. After Hodel's death in 1999, his son started investigating the case. Steve Hodel is a former LAPD homicide detective and has written several books. Both these cases are still technically unsolved, and there's a ton of information out there that you can do your own small investigation. So if you are interested, make sure you check out thesquonkandthehag.com and we post our sources, our show notes, and as much information as we can to help you on your journey. Thank you for listening. And next week, Krakow will be back. So since he's not here, I'm going to do his little outro and just say, okay, bye.